With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Sank, Swim, or Fly. Welcome, Sink, Swim, or Fly. We're with Dan Biscoff, good friend of mine. <laughs> for now, anyway. <laughs> and a disclaimer. Things might get crazy. Dan's kind of a wild card. That's why I brought him on. I'm glad to have you, Dan. What's up, man? Oh, chicken's ass when it eats. <laughs> so what's up, dude? I wanted to bring you on in general. We can get in all sorts of stuff, but uh, you know, you've ran your own festival. Yeah. Uh, you've been in recovery for several years. Eight years sobriety. Um, you're kind of a madman. <laughs> That's on my resume. Yeah, yeah, madman. That's me. And... uh. Yeah, I want to chat it up with you, dude. Sure. Well, I'll start uh, with uh, this. This story I um, has is is infamous amongst the tri-state area because of uh, the people that it has cracked ice with. So right off the bat, uh, if your children are listening to this, put them in the other room. But so, anyways, the story goes, uh, and it's relatively true uh i was uh, fucking his chicken the ass one time when i was in indianapolis ohio and uh, i'd been out on the town and i was drinking back then so anyway as we go back to my friend's place and uh she suggested that because it's not like my preferred destination i'm not really like one of those guys who needs to go for anal right off the bat it's not my you know preferred thing girls so if you run into me out there don't think that's what i'm trying to do anyhow so she, uh, okay, so I, I, I got, I'm fucking her in the ass, and uh, so I'm getting ready to uh, climax, and uh, I don't want to do that rapidly <laughs> because, you know, I, I don't want her to think that I'm not up to the performance. So I'm getting ready to change positions, and uh, when I pull out my uh, uh, penis, uh, I look down, and there's a, a, a lima bean stuck on the and on my wiener, and uh, I was like kind of a little put off, and I kind of puke just a little bit and I put my hand up and it kind of goes between my fingers and it hits her on the small of the back and she thinks I'm coming so she's like kind of rubbing a little bit of puke and oh yeah baby go ahead you know yeah so I'm like yeah this isn't really where I was headed with this to begin with and I can't put it you know on her vagina I'm gonna give her an infection because it's like a <laughs> pooey lima bean so I was like shake it off and I stick it back in her ass and kind of grab her by the hair a little bit i'm like honey you, you really should chew your food because there's like a digestional thing here you know so you really need to, to to you know chew before you swallow now that's the end of the story but this the funny part about all of this is get right into it don't you dan yeah 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 oh yeah well you know <laughs> the, the thing of it is i've told that story and it's amazing that how many girls think it's hilarious and wanted me to repeat it which you would actually not think would be the case so i was at a motorcycle rally in uh ohio and the uh, girl who was the uh, master of ceremony organizer whatever you want to call it had been drinking and she comes up she goes dan why don't you get on the microphone and uh, tell the lima bean story and i'm like for the love of god no <laughs> 
This is not, you know, I'm not going to tell that in here. Now, at this place, you know, we're outside. There's people in a parking lot. There's, you know, people all over the place. So anyway, she says, well, I'm going to. And so she gets on the microphone and she presents to tell her version of it. She wasn't involved, by the way. But anyway, so there's a big guy here, and he's got this story about how and he was having sex and lying with me. And, uh, and um, anyways, my friend that owned the uh, bar restaurant where they were having the rally uh, later on in the week told me that he actually got a letter from the city stating that neighbors had complained about somebody talking about anal sex and lima beans. It was just so, echoing through the neighborhood. Well, yes, this was like a bar, <laughs> downtown bar, a parking lot, you know, and they got a PA and a band and stuff. Oh, and so, shit. Yeah, so while she was speaking, they were listening, and so, it, you know. But another interesting thing is I was on uh, tour with uh, the goddamn Gallows, shout out to the boys, and uh, Husky Barnett and uh, Maddie B was on that sh- uh, lineup too, and uh, uh, Six Speed Kill was there too. So, anyways, uh, we went down. Now, Jake Orvis, who's in uh, Gallows, is a friend of mine, and he had played at my festival. He stayed at my house and everything. Nice guy. So he's given me the introduction to everybody. And uh, Avery, TV's Avery, who used to play with the Gallows. He R-U-N-N-O-F-T it is no longer in the gallows. But anyhow, I told them the Lima Bean story, and they were all just incredibly impressed with the uh, whole thing, <laughs> which, which, which Tyler amazes me because being familiar with the goddamn gallows and the way they look and the way they perform and everything, that seems some rel- loud-looking dudes. It's a relatively mild story for, for what you would see. You know, I mean, f- you know, fish guts and the guys, they, they're pretty... World. If, never, nobody's, if anybody's listening and hasn't heard them, check out some of their YouTube videos for reference. Definitely, yeah. Go to, uh, you know, anything by the goddamned gallows is, is worth, you know. They've been called uh, the band of hell or hell's, hell's house band. Yeah, and uh, doing well right now, as a matter of fact. Uh, played uh, Hellfest in Helsinki, Finland. and Pothole played with those guys a few times when we were touring, and that was... Uh, yeah. One of the highlights of being in that band, for sure, meeting yeah, those dudes. Yeah, and, and, and a cool bunch of dudes. Anyhow, so uh, after I got done telling the story to Avery, uh, he goes upstairs, and he uh, we're in a club in Pittsburgh, and uh, this place had every itis. As you looked around, I, I was looking at the place, and I'm a sound guy, a music guy, and I'm thinking, why is the soundboard surrounded in three-quarter-inch plywood and beams? And Well, then I can understand why. When a place, they had this shit, like, caged in. Oh, caged in, yes, and, and secured because it was one of the most outgoing. I'm pretty much fearless when it comes to that stuff. People were just tearing their shirts off, men, women, and throwing their drinks in the air, and everybody was getting just soaking wet and with other people's drinks and I was concerned I was going to get like the Egyptian measles or something. And I was a little concerned. (laughs) I went, you know, and I, you know, anyhow, uh, afterwards I tell him the story. And so anyways, uh, Husky comes back downstairs. I had briefly met the man. He's a, you know, signed artist again, Husky Barnett, check him out. Very good blues man. Uh, and he says, Avery just came upstairs and wanted me to, to have you tell me the story that you had just told him. And uh, uh, Grant from the Dreadnecks is there, and uh, Matt, 
Ball and Matty B, and they're like, oh, no, no, don't get him started. And So I tell the aforementioned Lima Bean story, and uh, he thinks it's hilarious. So we go to a couple other shows, carrying on this and that. So we were in West Virginia, and um, Husky comes up. He says, I want to introduce you to my uh, label, the guy that owns the label, Rusty Knuckle Records. And I look over, and this poor man has been now cornered by every musician in the neighborhood. You know, he's got three stacks of CDs. You got to hear about this lima bean. Yeah. Well, no. So, yeah. Well, anyway, he he he's he's uh, you know so he's Husky's waiting to take me over and introduce him, me to him, and I'm thinking this is awesome, and I already got my introduction to go because I'm going to tell the guy. I have no idea the Lima Bean story is even going to be in play in this. I'm thinking I'm going to meet the guy that owns Rusty Knuckle Records, and this is impressive to me, right? So he takes me over, and I'm like, he goes, this is my friend Dan, and uh, he goes, this is Ralph, Rusty Knuckle Records. And I'm like, please meet you. I says, you're going to like me right off the bat. And he goes, oh, why is that? I says, because I'm not trying to sell you anything or get signed. <laughs> And he was like, you pull up a chair right now here next to me because I just listened to 45 minutes of why I should have this other guy. And I'm like, yeah, that's my ride home. And so... He was getting the pitch, huh? Oh, yeah, he had gotten a lot of pitches. So anyways, when as soon as I sit down, uh, Husky goes, here, Dan, tell him the lima bean story. And I'm like, well, okay. So I do. And um, he's like... Wow, that's great, blah, blah, blah. A lot of things take place. We travel home, blah, 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 a few other shows. I get back to the... How many dates did you hit with them? Four, five. Um, how do you do that sober? Well... Was it tough? Was there any... How long have you been clean, by the way, sober? Eight years. That's continuously now prior to... Not to change subjects. No, no, you. no, it's fine. Not prior to that, I danced with sobriety. And um, I will come back around to that. But I want to right. cl clear this last part. Keep going. Off. Keep going. Yeah. yeah. The, what I did was once I got home off of running with those guys, I got back to the house. I punched on the Internet and I uh, looked up Rusty Knuckle Records and found out that it was bigger than I had anticipated. I mean, I knew it was good size and they had some artists and so on and so forth. Well, you could message uh, the label. Or send them an email or whatever, you know. And so I did randomly, and I thought, you know, hey, it's, you know, Dan with the lima bean story. Just thought I'd say, hey, didn't I get an immediate response from the main head HNIC of uh, Rusty Knuckles? He's like, thanks, Dan. Great introduction. I'll never forget you. So... <laughs> That is a big label, though, by it the is. way. yeah. And I've, it, I've seen, like, what all, all the artists they have, and it's a pretty extensive lineup. And the thing that is, is this is what I'm going to tell everybody. Be that guy that has some type of, I mean, I didn't do this on purpose, right? But, I mean, it, if you've got a, uh, a way to stick out in a crowd, even if it's with the lima bean story. Uh, Not to mention, you're like, how tall are you? Like 6'5? Six, 6'3, six, right? But I usually wear boats and look better. <laughs> They're like a fucking giant, Dan. <laughs> well, any, anyhow, they, uh, they remembered me. But uh, sobriety, though, yeah, I. Um, at first, uh, I danced with it uh, on and off. But now that I, I do go into the clubs, I've been 
here, there, everywhere, done a lot of things like that. And, and doing it sober now, and this is just individually, I'm not trying to push this as a good idea for anybody else. Um, I have been fortunate enough to see people that aren't attractive under the influence, and it reminds me that I don't need to be there because not every, every, a lot of people can drink. And I mean, I even know a guy that unbelievable as this may sounds can recreationally smoke crack. And I didn't think that was possible. I mean, he, I, I just was like, I couldn't believe that it. is one in like a hundred thousand. Yeah, it is. It's amazing. <laughs> well, to me. maybe I mean, more. I'm like, I'm like wait a minute. You, 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 you got on a crack pipe and were getting high and then decided, oh, that's right. I have to work tomorrow. So you put it down and went back to your hotel room and left the prostitutes and the crack in the other room. Yeah, that's like an Olympic event. There's no possible. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't have had that. You know, no, that's, that's insane. I think it's unheard of. Yeah, I mean, look what happened to Hickey Woods. You remember remember the Hickey Shuffle, the Hickey Woods guy that uh, he was a major uh, football star for the uh, Cincinnati Bengals, and um, he took them all the way to the Super Bowl. And then uh, the night before the game. Uh, got on a crack pipe and uh, uh, missed the Super Bowl. So you want to talk about really uh, showing the effects. Of... No stakes are too high. No, no. The guy <laughs> missed being the main star. Was that like his first time smoking crack? I really don't know the man, but I do know that. You just randomly, the night before the Super Bowl, you just start smoking crack. Well, you know, that's not ridiculous either because I had been listening to some drug documentaries and so on, and they were talking about cocaine in the 80s and professional sports being different today than it was then, athletes anyways. And um, in the uh, 70s, when the Pittsburgh Steelers were uh, incredible, uh, you know, forced to be reckoned with, their offensive line, and this is not a secret, you can look it up, it's all over the internet, uh, that they were literally in this guy's uh, apartment getting high all night, doing cocaine, drinking hard level, didn't sleep, went the next day, and won the Super Bowl. Uh, wow. A lot of guys back in the 70s, the Oakland Raiders and uh, Joe Namath and those guys, they weren't working out regularly. They were with girls and taking, which is not necessarily bad for the sport because it's not a performance enhancing drug, folks. Uh, you know, if, if you're trying to, you know, do really good at absolutely anything, don't try and take drugs and alcohol because it does not promote rational thinking or improve behaviors or that dude uh it made me think of that dude len len bias right that was the college dude that i think he played for maryland or whatever i actually just looked it up uh he did he tried coke in college and he had some heart issue and he died immediately like but he was supposed to be like the next jordan well i'll tell you there are uh some incredible stories like that um the one that always got me was... can't believe dude missed the Super Bowl. <laughs> well, Doc... Oh, what was his last name? He was a pitcher um, for the Pittsburgh Pirates. And um, I should have looked... Uh, you could look it up, folks. It's all over the place. He showed up to pitch. He didn't realize he was supposed to. And him and his wife took LSD on the way to the park to the game. And when they got there, uh, he said, Hey, you're up. Uh, you know, on the roster to pitch, and he's well. Like, he didn't think he was going to be played. No, no, and he didn't. even so, though, would you want to sit there tripping? 
Well, maybe, I, maybe. I, apparently he did. I don't know what was in the man's mind. Apparently a whole lot of hallucinations. Anyways, he pitched a no-hitter. Yeah, I've read that story. Yeah, Is that yeah, real he wrote a shit? Book, he wrote a book, book about it. About So that's true. Yes. Because yeah, I've read that uh, or seen something about that before, but I didn't know yeah, if that was yeah. like. And, and um, yeah, he pitched a no-hitter that day, uh, tripping on acid, which uh, I took a lot of acid throughout my life. And again, this is not an endorsement. But uh, that it never. I really didn't think that I would be able to perform a high caliber anything uh, while I was on uh, LSD. You know the crazy thing is, and I don't think I've never really told this story publicly, but I didn't start playing music until I was like seventeen or eighteen, and I couldn't play very well at all. Like I had some cousins down in Illinois, like Marion, Illinois, and I went down there a few times, held a guitar, did the smoke on the water shit. Everybody, that's the first song yeah. they learn. Yeah, you know, but like, uh, listen to a bunch of garbage growing up, like what was on the radio. But then my cousins were into some cool shit, and uh, they introduced me to like bands like Queen and Hendrix and all these bands because I was I grew up in the '90s, so I missed all that shit, obviously. But uh, I came back home, and me and my buddies got into uh, acid and uh, some synthetic mescaline that apparently came from some university. But um, I picked up a guitar on acid. And basically, within two, three days, could just play how I do now. You see, Timothy Leary would say that that's because it was a good thing. He was an advocate. Not to endorse it either, but like, no. yeah, something clicked where like I could almost see the blueprint of the instrument. And I had some natural rhythm, but it fucking made sense. And uh, yeah, somehow it, it clicked for me. It, like some mathematical end of things. Yeah. The, 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 you know, couldn't I couldn't imagine though being in the stadium with all those people looking at well, me. Well, you know, I, I'm... <laughs> I've seen people have bad reactions to it. Uh, fortunately, I never did. That's like the story that uh, you'll jump out a window because you think you're a bird. Exactly. Chick. Well, I've seen, I saw a girl uh, sitting on a case of beer screaming that she was going to float away and she couldn't let go of the case of beer. <laughs> it's fucked up. Yeah, yeah. And um, again, it's a bad thing. I mean, don't, you know, it, it's not, you know, not a good thing to play around with. But uh, they, I think if you have any, like, underlying mental issues it can really oh, attach to that and blow you right, right open yeah, it'll go right to it and there's that's for sure and and when i was in school i used to take how this, old are you by the way real quick i'll be uh 53 in uh december so i'm almost i'm almost 50 congratulations on the eight years by the way yeah i'll tell you um i had well this is a good time to tell this this month um, it has a lot of impact on me because uh, my youngest son was born uh, on Thanksgiving. And if you're born on Thanksgiving, uh, your birthday stays the same, but Thanksgiving rotates. Like it's only every seven years, I think, don't hold me to that, that your, uh, your birthday falls on Thanksgiving. Anyhow, when he was born, it did. And um, he, uh, on his... Uh, birthday as 24th birthday on the 24th of November uh, shot and killed himself and it's mm. been seven years since that happened and if I hadn't been sober at that time when I got the news I can guarantee you there would have been other bodies that went with that probably my own as well so at the time you were one year clean. Yeah, I had a, I had a little over a year because my sober date's July. Sorry 1st. to hear that, man. That's horrible. 
and I'd seen, I didn't know, I think you might have told me that before, um, but I saw you, you post about it recently. I, I, tr- I, I try to share that with people now because at the time it happened, he was living away in Massillon, Ohio, and so it wasn't in the news a lot, and so I was kind of glad because people try to be kind and they come up to you, I'm sorry for your loss. Well, you you know what I mean? If you're trying, you don't want to be continuously bombarded with something like that. So it actually was nice that I wasn't, you know, and after I had some time, uh, but I, I was able to deal with that. But when I, when I first was making major attempts at sobriety, I had uh, about a year without drinking. Um, I was still doing other things because I thought as long as I didn't drink, that was the main cause of my problems. I could still recreationally use meth or coke or uh, whatever, and I was wrong, uh, you know. But at that time, I wasn't sure about it. But anyhow, I had about a year with nothing, and I had been coming back through Indianapolis, and I had great friends down there, and uh, I'd stopped, and they all had a drink after dinner, and uh, I had one. And uh, no demons came out of the sky, and the ground didn't open up, and nothing attacked me. So when when was it, seven years ago? Eight years ago. Uh, So I'd had a year in, drank, had one. I'm cured. I'm cool. There's not an issue. So I came home. I've been there before. Yeah. Came home. That weekend, July 1st, 2011. (laughs) I uh, was coming into town because the uh, legendary Shack Shakers was playing at the Crooked Eye. So I, uh, my son Adam, who uh, plays in the Joe Nameless band, Joe Nameless, uh, and I were going to go see the Shack Shakers. So I came into town and, being recently cured of my issues with uh, alcohol, decided that I'd be able to drink. So anyhow, they wouldn't even let me in the place because I was just smashed out of my brain and staggering around on the street. And it was motorcycle uh, festivity day also. So they had State Street all blocked off, motorcycles everywhere. And I'm staggering around saying things that I don't really remember. Was it Roar on the Shore? Yeah, it was during that 2011, you know, one. If it was a Roar on the Shore or if it was just a bike night because of the 4th of July weekend. I'm not really exactly what was going on there. But anyhow, I had drank like $500 worth of... I mean, when I drank, people don't understand this, that I would drink 100 drinks in an evening. I mean, an entire bottle of whiskey and several mixed drinks and bottles of wine. I just... I had a really high tolerance at that point because of continuous use and anyhow. So anyhow... Unless you're you're a big dude. Being a big guy too. So I... Anyways, I guess after being thrown, not even allowed into the Crooked Eye, and that was a good decision on their part, (laughs) uh, I wandered down the street and I gather that I was looking for some place to go and throw up where nobody would see me because still needed to maintain my attractiveness to the ladies, you see. So I uh, wandered into the parking garage, and I went all the way up to the roof, and I uh, guess I uh, threw up up there, and I decided to lay down in the cool cement because that was, you know, a good idea to comfortably lay there. And uh, somebody had called uh, the ambulance, and um, 
they came and gathered me up and put me in an ambulance and took me to St. Vincent's. And they said, uh, did you take any drugs? And I said, do I have any money in my pockets? And they said, yes. And I said, then no. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> no, I didn't take any drugs. So I remember being in the emergency room and I looked at the, my blood alcohol content was like 372 or something. I don't know. Yeah, it was crazy. So wow, they uh, that certified dead almost. Yeah, it was high. I mean, you know, anyhow, they uh, kept me there, IVs in me and stuff, and so around about five o'clock in the morning. So if you would have laid there, you probably would have ended up dead. I don't know if I'd ended up dead, but I would have had a hell of a sunburn being on the roof of the 10th Street parking garage. And I've been dead a lot of times. I've been shot, motorcycle accidents. That's a whole another series of stories. But uh, anyhow, I, I, the doctor comes in and he quoted a, a line from uh, The Who. He says, uh, well, you can go sleep at home tonight if you can get up and walk away. And I'm like, I'm going to leave here running because walking goes too slow, old muddy water. So, so I <laughs> called a cab. I got a ride home, which was $70 to ride from my house to, from the the taxi ride to my house, went inside, uh, licked my wounds, unplugged the phone, hung over good and proper, and that was the last day. I then got, uh, I was always kind of dancing around in AA, uh, but this I finally decided, look, it's, I need to be even more serious about this. So I got a sponsor, and I did the 12 steps and all of that stuff. And I'm still active in the program. Uh, not a every day like I you know probably should or whatever, but I do go and I have a home group and I have a sponsor and a sponsor has a sponsor. And uh, hey folks, if uh, you got a problem, uh, go. Don't get caught up in the fine print. Everybody looks for a reason to make excuses about it. Uh, you don't believe in God. You do believe in God. It's a different God. You don't want to hear this. You don't want to hear that. Just go put your ass in the seat and listen. If it comes around, it's a discussion. You don't want to talk. Just growl. They'll get the picture. And That's uh, what I did for a long time. I went there, and I didn't look at the 90 reasons that I should be there. I looked at, the, like, the five why I didn't personally. It didn't work for me. Exactly. And, uh... I stayed fucked up for a long time with all those indifferences. And then when I went in recently, because I do NA, mm. and uh, I started looking for similarities, you know? That whole, like, I'm different, I'm unique, I don't need this shit. <laughs> Turns out I fucking, I needed to be somewhere because I, I could not do this shit on my own. That's the thing. And then the other also is people with addiction issues uh, have similarities and if you're going to meetings, it's like if you were a bar drinker or a party goer, which I was. Um, it was like you got to find the right one because uh, you can go to meetings just like you could go to bars that you didn't like. That didn't stop you from drinking. You just went to a different bar. Well, look at sobriety like that. Just because there's one group that you don't like, keep looking, keep going. Because I found uh, my home group... Uh, the Tuesday night men's discussion group in uh, Gerard saved my life. And there's no ifs, ands, buts about it. And uh, the great bunch of p 
people that go there regularly and that's what I needed. I needed to be able to uh, find a place where I could bounce my thoughts and ideas off of them and then listen also to what they were saying. And But for the first period, my brain was scrambled eggs. I mean, I drank, I drank 100 drinks and took everything all the time. You know, it's hard to come out of that and, you know, your mind isn't right for a long time. I mean, people- Dude, it's been a year or it's been 13 months uh, this week for me. And honestly, you know, that first period, I was, uh, they call it the pink cloud honeymoon. Mm. Like, woo! Like manic almost. Like I got this all figured out. Mm, yeah. um, and we then, wrote the steps, and make then, better. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then <laughs> yeah. like six months to 12 months, it was like depressed and confused about everything. And it seems like within the last few weeks, I've been coming out of that. But yeah, it's not a, it's not as simple. And, that's, and I think that's why meetings are so important because you need something to fill some of that void, you know, and, uh, and other addicts were like there for me, like a lot of my music buddies and a lot of other people weren't. Um, but like, yeah, some of the most trusting and loving and best people I've ever met are, or fucking addicts or drunks. Of course. Of course. And I'll, I'll tell you, I'm going to nail it down. Uh, if you want to stay sober, there's two things. There's only two things that you really need to do. All right, this isn't a Hallmark card. This isn't a joke. There are two things that you should do. Go to meetings and don't pick up that first substance. Everything else is window dressing along the way, and it helps. Don't rule out any of those other things that you will hear. Don't pick up the first thing and go to meetings because usually... People that have addictions problems are, and I are one, uh, people that have the ability to see other people's problems and can't fucking take care of their own where the shit. So after a period of time, you begin to be able to share some of your experiences with somebody, and then you start feeling good about helping them, which fills part of the uh, void that's been uh, plugged with drugs and alcohol and that's part of it that whole uh, helping and social atmosphere and being around uh, people with similar issues because I've seen people tell their stories and I thought mine was wild I mean there's always somebody that can top it you know I mean uh, there's there's a lot of people out there that have been damaged. So you're not alone. So if you're listening to this, you know, just go. Put your ass in a seat. Go to a meeting. And there you are. <laughs> so. Yeah, dude. I mean, to stay uh, clean and sober through that situation with your son is is, well, is that, crazy. Yeah, Having man. a little boy, I couldn't imagine that shit, man. Yeah, it was. It, I got mad love for you. I have I have three sons. My I have two that are alive. I have my youngest son died and and um that was a tragic thing but it i i have come to terms with it it's not easy i've also been able to help speak to some other people who have had children you know commit suicide or die or because i'm not exactly sure whether my son shot himself on purpose uh, that's too much of a story to get into right now, and I'm not gonna. 
But okay, um, I dig it. I dig you know, it. he he did shoot himself, but it was in a group of people and drinking, and it was, it was a lot of stuff going on. But anyhow, um, if you're trying to speak to somebody about being in prison and you've never been in prison, or playing music and you've to someone who's never you know, and you've never played, or you're going to teach somebody uh, jujitsu because you've seen it on television, it doesn't. That's not really a functional way and it's the same thing so I have some people who've come to speak to me uh, because they've had children and I like listen I don't know exactly what you're going through but I've gone through this and this is what helped me so you know I I, you know that uh, there's a lot of other things too I mean I I also breed dogs. I have a kennel business that I ran, and I, I was kind of famous in that. I've uh, been in some books. In fact, I used to write for a magazine in Europe um, about uh, you know, the dogs and dog breeding. And so I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I've got dogs all over the world. Um, you still I, do that? Yeah, um, on a much smaller scale uh, because... It's a different time, and um, it's different now. Uh, I was able to make money and do well by it for a while, but uh, nowadays uh, people want to rescue animals. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But um, I kept uh, purebred dogs for purpose. I, I wasn't one of those guys that bred dogs for a way they look. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just not what I would do. I was into the fact they had to do the performance. If you've got a rat terrier, it needs to kill rats. If you've got a retriever, it needs to retrieve. If you've got a, uh, you know, whatever, a, a dog that's... Uh, designed to uh, pull a cart you know they need to be able to do that and if you're breeding specifically for looks that's fine but myself I was more into the performance and I used to go down did you do all types of breeds or just a specific I did I did um, because I was involved with Schutzend uh, here in Erie for a while which is like a competition of police dog type training and I was pretty advanced at that I could train Dogs. In fact, I was on television for that a few times, and I did some seminars. Uh, not seminars, but we did things at schools where we would I would put the gear on and get attacked by a dog, which gets everybody's attention. And then once you've <laughs> Why been... Why can't I see you being that guy? Oh, yeah, yeah, I've been that guy. And lots of times, I've probably been attacked five, six hundred times with the suit on, of course. And um, they... Uh, get your, they get people's attention, and then I would explain to them about how to avoid being bitten if you could and also that you know there's no specific breed of dog that's bad i mean pit bulls chows rottweiler it doesn't matter what type of dog it is it's pretty much how they were raised how they were bred irresponsible people so on and so forth but i got really involved in the breeding of uh american pit bull terriers and or uh band dogs and uh Rottweilers and I, lots of different. I've had everything there is: Brazileros and uh, Argentine Dogos and all kind of stuff. Do the police uh, use basically only German Shepherds? No, um, those are, I think those are the only ones I've ever seen. Well, you've probably seen Belgian Malinois and didn't realize that's what they were. They look kind of like shepherds. Similar, yeah. In fact, if you're familiar with the uh, uh, Bin Laden raid. Uh, the dog that the Navy SEALs and SEAL Team 6 brought with them was a Belgian Malinois. And um, they are of incredible uh, talents in that type of aspect. But uh, again, that's also not a dog if you're 
bred to be a high performance that is a great pet unless you've got several hours to dedicate to exercise because they're, you know, high energy, mischievous, and if you, you got to channel that stuff. And uh, But yeah, Belgian, the Malinois have become the go-to. In fact, if you look up on the internet, they have got them where they're jump up on roofs of houses onto power lines and walk on the power lines to the next pole and jump onto the roof and go through broken glass. And they actually have competitions for this. Some of it's beyond remarkable. Uh, and then also look at, here's something, folks. Go to the YouTube. You know the YouTube, do you? And uh, <laughs> Google the uh, Pitbull versus Malinois. What they do is they show the American Pitbull Terrier performing incredible stunts, weight pulling, running up the sides of walls, catching things and, and uh, doing stuff like that. And then they show the Malinois also uh, doing what it's done. Both breeds are credible and uh, it's all very entertaining and uh, something that you could look at. But but yeah, I, 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 I enjoy it. It was kind of a, a passion for a long time. I still you know, don't want to get away from it. And I have some American bulldogs right now too. And, you know, I, how many dogs you have right now? 17. Damn. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I have 17 dogs. Just at the house. Well, yeah, but I, I'm tooled for it. I have, uh, uh, almost five acres and I have, you know, kennels and cages and fenced in areas and, it's pretty nice. I mean, I mean, you know, it doesn't translate to a lot of money. Uh, it, uh, you know, there are. It's people, got you got to have the passion behind him, right? Yes. In February, when the snows ass deep to a tall Indian, and you're going out there with five gallon buckets of food and trudging through the snow, you really got to have a passion for it then. And uh, but we used to also go down hunt pigs down south, hog hunting, which with the dogs, which is a lot of fun. Uh, and hogs. Which, which dogs you use for that? Well, there's several, but if you're going to catch the hogs and bring them out alive, you use the uh, the pit bulls because you would run them with the bay dogs and they would run the hogs, find them, start letting you know, and then you bring the pit bulls in lead, let them go. They'll run in and grab the pigs by the nose or the testicles <laughs> and then you come in and you hog tie them and bring them out alive so there's i mean they're smart to the point where like i gotta grab him where he's gonna be done that's parse training uh you've got to train them in that aspect the instincts too. though there is an instinct there but the, you've got to work on training them for that which is a lot of the reasons why they would bring them out alive and they actually have rodeos where they release a pig and you and your dog would go out and they would time how long it would take your dog to catch it and you to tie it and kind of So like they literally get... drag them to you or they just kind no, of No, no, like... no, they're not dragging them. No, the hogs are big and the dogs are not. It's all about their ability to get them in a tender area and occupy the business end because hogs will kill you. They are no joke. They'll bust into your house for your garbage. I mean, wild boars And they are... can get huge. They can especially when they're crossed with uh, feral pigs and or guys have introduced uh, other uh, breeds to make them big. But they have big, sharp tusks and will just, it's not a joke. I'd, I'd like to see that in their natural environment because I've never seen something like that in the wild. Um, well, I'll tell you. I've seen like farm pigs and well, shit. Well, yeah, wild boars are destroying the southern part of the United States. They're just, they're just, they go into these wetlands 
and uh, just destroy, do so much damage. And they breed uh, every nine months or every so many months. They have large uh, litters, can have 10, 12. They start breeding at 10 months of age and have 10, 13, 14 piglets. And, you know, they'll come into crops and they just destroy the farmland and they get into the wetlands and they root and destroy these areas. In fact, they inc- they must encourage a lot of hunting for them. It's all like down south. Yeah, they have like open seasons where they'll you know you can go on Discovery Channel and a lot of these places and they'll show. I mean, they that's a, a, a problem and uh, they you know they're, it's it's not a joke. I mean, there there's a really big problem with the you know the damage that they do, the fact that they kill you and eat you. I mean, one of their preferred diets is rattlesnakes, folks. So uh, anything that likes to hunt and kill live rattlesnakes, you, 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 you got to respect that. Are they immune to that shit or do they, do they get them before they get they bit? They get bit and they don't, uh, you know. It, it, I bet like centuries or, or so much time of them, it becomes in sort of their, or their I think evolution. also that their heads swell. It depends on where they're at. I mean, when you're dealing with rattlesnakes in Texas and stuff like that, it's not like some of the others where the venom is a lot more intense. You know, I'm not an expert on rattlesnakes, but I know that they, they, they tear them up. But they also... there's people that have been cabins and they're cooking and they'll bust into their house. That's fucked up. Yeah. And, and you've got something that (laughs) How much do you think one of them thing weighs? Yeah. Well, here's a funny story. They, they, you know, three to 500 pounds is not uncommon, but Google hogzilla, uh, in was Carolina is a guy shot one that was like, uh, North of a thousand pounds. Now you're looking at something that's bigger than a sofa weighs as much as a small car holy fuck yeah and it'll and, and run you down bust and eat you as they don't care what they eat they have, so something that big would just go after a live human that's not a problem if they want to yeah they're not kind things and uh you know the wow and the damage that they again that they do but see a lot of that stuff was because of uh crossbreeding um some of these guys that were bringing people in for uh, guided hunts the uh uh, customers were complaining that they weren't big enough. So one of these guys, nobody takes full responsibility, imported some uh, wild hogs from uh, Russia and uh, introduced them into the wild. And they started to change the uh, gene pool to where the pigs uh, were no longer uh, timid or and they began to become more dominant, less, you know, and these things are really aggressive, so... You know, you look at all that stuff. What's up. the point of breeding them aggressive? Well, they didn't want them aggressive. They wanted them bigger so that when oh, uh, the food. gentleman flew in to go hunting, they were satisfied with their trophies. Oh, okay. I got you. You know, it's all makes sense. Boils down to the dollars. You yeah. Know? I mean, it's all, that's what it, everything's about. Like, money. come get yourself a trophy boar. That's right. Come down here to Billy Bob's House of Pigs, and we'll guarantee you the largest hog that you could possibly see. Keep everything away from its face, mouth, and genitals, folks, because you don't want to go home with something you didn't bring. <laughs> That's the, the you got a voice hogs. for radio, Dan. Oh yeah, I got, I got a face for radio too. I was told, <laughs> but uh, I hear the radio adds ten pounds. Well, yes, the, ah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, that's one of the things that uh, people have told me because I, when I spend time with someone, if they have accents or whatever, because I've been around the world a little bit, and um, my uh, 
some of my friends were from Serbia. In fact, that's where the magazine was that I used to write from for. So when I would spend time with these people, I would pick up the foreign accents. This is how they talked from Serbia. My friend Slobos from Canada, and he was talking like this when he would say, Danny, you are a very funny man. He says, there's three things you like to do, and two of them is eating. And so <laughs> he would cook for me, and we would have good times and stuff. Wow. But anyways, I, 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 when my kids were at home and someone would call, they could always tell who I was talking to because if I was talking to somebody, you naturally start- oh, I just start doing that, you know, I'll pick up from Buddy the South or, you know, or uh, you know, he was from Brooklyn over there, is talking to guys like that. You know, and they're like, "Oh, you were talking to Pete or whatever." You know, <laughs> and later on, I found that uh, I noticed that when I toured the South, uh, like three, four days in the shows, pretty soon I'm like this on a mic. Thanks for coming out. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't even know why I'm doing it. I know, I know. And uh, they said that Bob Dylan uh, was like that. I just watched. Um, uh, no Direction Home, the documentary on Bob Dylan. Is that that's the older one, right? It's the only one that I know of. I'm they sure they just did some like Rolling Thunder release. Okay, no, from this, the '70s. Yeah, ship, but, is, but that's a classic one. Yeah, it killer. is with Martin Scorsese and I think Scorsese did the Rolling Thunder one too that just came out. Well, yeah, he also did the Last Waltz. For yeah. uh, I hear there's a new uh, PBS uh, country. Or the beginning of country documentary. It's like a series, and there's several episodes. I hear it's fucking awesome. Well, I the Bob Dylan, uh, No Direction Home was fantastic to me because I didn't realize what Bob went through because I grew up there wasn't you know social media or. Uh, internet access to a lot of the stuff so you know read magazines or what people handed down so you're really getting narrow perspectives of things and i knew that bob had quit playing out and everything and i always just in the back of my mind attributed that to he was an eccentric guy right well then after i watched the no direction home i found out that well first of all brilliant is an understatement as far as his talents go i just was floored by some of this he stuff. was a fountain Oh my God! Like a fountain, and a the, well of uh, the, creativity. And when he would his, I'm a lyric guy. I'm into poetry, and I like lyrics and songs. So his stuff just blew me away. And then, well, when he transitioned to electric, which now you look at guys like Jack White, who could do anything, and everybody would follow him because it's Jack White, and we're just going to give it a shot. Well, Bob Dylan didn't get that. Uh, Grace. He he was labeled a you know Woody Guthrie uh, protest type song uh, meaningful person, and then in about 1964 when he started to uh, play electric music, and his ba- his ba- backing band was the band. Well, they became the band for a minute. Uh, that was towards the end of his uh, touring. And originally. When he decided that he was going to play some electric stuff, he got um, Mike Butterfield, the Butterfield Blues Band, because Mike and him had been on different shows together. And Mike said, uh, hey, uh, you know, I've heard some of this music you're playing. If you ever want to get introduced to the blues, you know, let me know. And he watched him play. And at that time, and if you ever see Butterfield play, uh, he's like 
incredibly talented. And so Bob used them. And that's where like the beginnings of those of those uh, live performances was was Mike Butterfield and him. And then those were the ones where he was straight getting booed, booed, booed. The yeah. whole, they, they'd come out, they'd buy a ticket and they'd boo the well, entire would, time. He, he, he came out and he would do the first half of the show acoustic. And then he would play. Yeah. And he would. They I haven't would seen that in a while. Boot him off. And then, uh, it, well, not off because he wouldn't leave. And then <laughs> he, he was going to these He's probably basked in that shit. Well, knowing. he didn't. It, didn't, it ate on him for a yeah. while because yeah, he, here he is. And the, the music was incredible. These songs were incredible. The very few, the first music video, the subterranean homesick blues, when he was peeling off those. Uh, lyrics on the page as the song on video is brilliant. I mean, even today, that's like one of the best videos I've seen. And he just did it as a lurk. He didn't realize MTV music was so way far, far, far ahead of his time. And the the album he did with those guys where he did like one uh, fifteenth of Dream, I think is this one song. And then... Um, uh, what was the other one? Route 61. I mean, Highway 61. Those are great songs. And I didn't realize how good that stuff was. I just didn't put, give him a lot of opportunity. And then towards the end, when the band, Robbie Robertson and the band played with him, that was one of his last tours. And, and they came on full knowing that, you know, people were trying to tip the cars over, throwing stuff at him. And, and then he quit playing for, it was eight years. He, he, he was still, you know, he wouldn't play live. And, uh, and then when he came back... He's one of those dudes everybody wanted to put what he was doing in this box. Exactly. Uh, and have it, you know, a lot of the war-driven shit. And you'd ask him, like, are you a protest singer? And he'd fuck around at interviews. Like, I'm a song and dance man, baby. Exactly. Like, <laughs> and that, and, and, <laughs> like you can't put me in a box. And, uh, and, and I can see where that would be... You know, because as an artist, you're always wanting to, like, take it up a notch, do something different, really fulfill yourself creatively. And uh, that would be hard at that point to just be like, okay, all they want is uh, yeah, blowing in the wind. Right. And then, and uh, which I I just was floored by the whole thing. I mean, the, the way he talked and when they were, he was in his 20s, way, way, way ahead of his time. And they were, he was doing these interviews and people were like, how many people are there that are actually protest singers now how would you answer a question like that and you know what he says he goes 136 and they're like is that an exact number yeah yeah there's actually a... and then they he printed was... it bob dylan said there's 136 protest singers in the folk scene i'm like that's i mean that's brilliant he toyed with them in those interviews of course and then i haven't seen that one in a while but it's, oh, it's uh, it, it blew my mind the hard thing for me and i hate you know i don't want to offend anybody here but the first part of the movie where it was showing a lot of the music of the time folk stuff, some of that Irish uh, music and Joan Baez and some of these other, I don't care for a lot of that. And uh, just not that there's anything wrong with it. I just, it's not my thing. Uh, no, Joe's he Baez, brought He brought some edge to that shit. Right. I mean, know? her, her, okay. It's beautiful. I get it. I can listen to a song, but if I had to sit through a show of it, I I, I wouldn't say anything. I'm a polite guy, but it's just not my thing, you know. And um, so I was you know, on one- Cash Cash loved. 
he was a big uh, oh, yeah. deal with Dylan getting on Columbia. They were like, this fucking dude, you know, he's mimicking shit from 50 years ago. Like, we don't want anything to do with him. And Cash is like, no, you got to sign this dude. Yeah. I, he was a the, huge part of him getting there, on Columbia. Yeah, in fact, uh, Johnny Cash, and then he looked up to Cash because he was one of his idols, too. And they recorded stuff together. And, and uh, the, the, one of the stories that I really liked was... Um, John, I don't remember his last name. He was in an Irish band, and he actually wrote the song uh, "House of the Rising Sun." So Bob Dylan was the first person to record it, and he, uh, after recording it on his first album, which I think eight people bought originally, um, he went to. Did one you say of, eight people? Yeah, bought? it was like it was like when it first came out. He didn't get any. The first one he ever did was mostly covers, I think. Well, I, yeah, he but he he went and then talked to the guy who wrote House of the Rising Sun. And he was like, hey, what would you think about me recording that song and putting it on the thing? And the guy says, well, you know, actually, I, I don't know. I'm kind of thinking I'm going to do it myself. And he was like, uh-oh. And he goes, what do you mean, uh-oh? He goes, well, I've already recorded it and put it on my record. And so the guy... Uh, I think it was John from the Whaler. I can't remember. Anyhow. The name? Yeah. It says, House of the Rising Sun is an American folk song thought to be written by Georgia Turner and Brett Martin. But I know um, the most well-known versions were recorded by uh, Eric Burden and well, the that, Animals. Right. Well, see, this is the story. The guy who was doing it the most had introduced John to the song. Seems like they don't know for sure. Well, right. Well, the Irish guy said, listen, I'm going to re- I'm going to record... Uh, maybe that guy, John Turner, I don't know. But he said, uh, I, uh, I'm, you know, he says, I would play it. So he goes, I had to quit playing it out because everybody's like, oh, you're doing Bob Dylan's song. Yeah. And he said, which was frustrating, but he said it made me feel great was when Eric Bird and the Animals recorded it and Bob had to quit playing it because everybody said, oh, you're covering an animal song. And uh, so he says, you know, come around full circle. But Dylan yeah. was one of those dudes that like, People would take his songs and fucking just, like uh, Guns N' Roses did uh, Knocking on Heaven's Door. And then Hendrix did a couple of the songs and blew him out of the water, you know, which yeah. I guess he'd probably have to be honored. Dude, even Wagon Wheel. Did you know Wagon Wheel was yes. um, yeah. verses were written by? Yeah, they went, they went to Bob, got permission. The uh, old Crow Medicine show. They, what? they like 50-50 wrote it. Like he, either yeah. he had the hook or the verses or vice right, versa. Right, and then right, they took it right, to that next right. level. And then um, uh, Hootie. Which I don't like that. I didn't like that version. I like pretty much anything that uh, Old Crow does. And so once I'm in the Old Crow you know, state of mind, I can listen to them play anything. So I didn't mind it at all. No, I like I liked Old Crow's version. Oh, I, mean, I didn't like the... Darius the, Rutgers. Yeah. No, no. Because that was a thing that people thought, oh, he wrote that. Yeah, like, he didn't write that That's shit. the whole spin on the, hey, you couldn't do House of the Rising Sun anymore. And yeah. I, I didn't care for Darius Rutgers' version of it either. But... Um, there's a, like Dylan's, uh, Rolling Stone, uh, song when they did it electric was pretty neat because again, Mike Bloomfield, Bloomfield was the guy to play guitar on it. And the uh, gentleman who plays keyboards, which on that song, the keyboards is a major part. And the guy was working in the studio, and he was a engineer working with him, and he had made up his mind that he was going to play guitar on this. So he decided to sit down, he's playing guitar. He said, well, then, you know, Butterfield, uh, and I might be butchering that name, but anyhow, he, uh, 
was uh, sounds like a Thanksgiving turkey. Yeah, he, he was tuning. Get and, you a butterfield and, and, and stuff. <laughs> and, and and so uh, he was like, "Okay, I'm not playing guitar on this because this guy's way more talented than me." So he went over to the organ and keyboards and he said, "Okay, I got a great part." And he's lying my ass off. I had no clue about what to play or whatever. And he's like, "So I ended up getting my my foot in the door. Was able to play on the song." And when they were engineering it, mixing it at the end, Bob's like, you know, hey, turn that up. Turn the keyboards up. And he yeah. said it ended up being a big part of the... Of like the, a rolling stone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and No Direction Home, which is the name of that documentary, which is, you know, really... But, uh, well, Maggie's Farm, um, uh, Rage Against the Machine does a great version oh, yeah. of Maggie's Farm. And also they do a great version of... Uh, Bruce Springsteen's uh, 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 Ghost of Tom Joad, which phew. oh, Machine does Rage. Oh yeah, uh, I, I'm sure that I've heard I've heard it. I don't, oh, it doesn't man. ring a bell. Look, go to uh, Maggie's Farm though for sure. Go to the live version if you could on one of the live uh, DVDs of Rage Against the Machine and watch De La Rocha and them guys do uh, the Ghost of Tom Joad. Wow, I'm getting goosebumps just sitting here talking about it. That is. I heard they're going to do a tour soon. I don't know if that's hearsay or what. Uh, I don't know. I'm a huge Rage fan. I know that. Two shows, $900 a piece. Yeah, well. I, <laughs> Probably more than I, that if I, that's I, all they did. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, 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 I like, think the band's incredible. Um, I missed out when that was happening. Um, unfortunately, at the time, I was pretty uh, against a lot of that rap sounding vocals and only rage that I had heard was some radio play. So I didn't give them any chance. And then once I listened to them, it was already too late. And I'm like, Oh my goodness, I've missed out on this great band because of me pigeonholing them. And again, that's another thing. I think I'm that doing. lead guy, I forget his name, but he went on to do some hip hop type shit. But that was definitely like the more the radio played, definitely had more of the hip hop influence. Yeah, well, Zach De La Rocha. He um, yeah. he was in a prior to being in Rage, he was in a hardcore band, um, and uh, I learned this because we did a show with um, Full Scale Riot in New York, and the guy. When you say we did a show, what do you mean? Uh, Joe Nameless, my son's band. Okay, right on. And uh, the Dreadnecks uh, were playing a show, so we went up there. Dreadnecks are from Ole in New York. If yeah, you've never heard them, they're yeah, kick-ass. Incredible. Now they got another. Devin, shout out. Uh, great prodigy guitar player. They're young dude, right? He does a little banjo. Yeah, electric banjo. Is he still with them? Yeah. Now they got another guy, too, from Erie. and it's... That dude will blow your tits off, Oh, man. my God. Now, the other kid that they just got, too, it's like... Devin is so talented that not only does he play every instrument, my son, Joe Nameless, was in picked up for a competition in Erie, uh, Battle of the Bands type situation, okay? They didn't have a drummer to play live. And so Devin says, I'll come down and play drums. He drove down the night before, learned all the songs in like half an hour on the, went, played live drums and then went home. And it was like, you know, you bastard, you're so good. And in fact, uh, the, the guys from the goddamn Gallows, they were playing with them. And I was hanging out with those guys and their manager and everything. And 
they were all talking about Devin, like, man, oh my God, he's incredible. And I'm like, yeah, you should hear him play drums. And the dr- drummer from Gallows is like, he plays drums too? I'm like, yeah. He goes, we have to kill him. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, but yeah, he, he, he plays, he's just one of those guys. He has you, and he's nice too, because I, I went to some shows, him and Grant and I are friends, and we went to so, see... Uh, Grant, the lead singer. Yeah, yeah, Grant, and we went seeing um, Clutch and uh, Mastodon in Pittsburgh, and uh, just it's a great time, because Grant doesn't drink either. and um, so, He just doesn't drink or is he in recovery? He does, doesn't drink. I oh, never right really on. ask why. I, I find that to be, a, if somebody wants to ask me, I speak openly about it. Yeah. But I look at it this way. I, I Some people, you, you know, I lost a, <laughs> I, I went to a job one time and the gentleman that was there was in a wheelchair. And I had to do some work to help out around those handyman type of stuff I was helping with and put some cabinets together and so on and so forth through some friends. And um, I thought, I wonder how many people go, so how'd you end up in the wheelchair? <laughs> and I'm like, now why would you do that to, to somebody? How terrible. <laughs> well, it was the most tragic thing in this person's life. You, you know, he's talking about his life prior and how he worked there and he would So write. we'll put you in the chair. So yeah, what the hell happened there? You know, and, and, and what if it's like this ghastly story where his father in a drunken rage ran over him with a yeah. car? I mean, well, why would you do that? <laughs> so when you ask, so why, you know, why, oh, you don't drink. Is there a reason for that? Well, you know, I don't mind. Yeah, not that you should put, even if you did know, not to put anybody's business out there. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's just, you know, I, that's that, that's crazy. But, um, yeah, so Grant, I mean, yeah, no, he just doesn't. And, uh, and I think that when you look at successful longevity, in music especially because musicians comedians children of the night all end up being out in those environments where you're going to be surrounded by drugs and alcohol and bars literally and if you get into that scene that's the scene you're going to be in and you're not going to make forward progress in your in your you know trying to do stuff because look at everybody i mean how many musicians Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Bon Scott, that, that, you know, Keith Moon. I mean, how, and those are the ones that we know that were famous before they died. How many of them out there were incredibly talented that didn't even make it because of, you know. Yeah, that obvious connection between art and drugs. Yeah, and that, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's it's like a, the oldest story ever told. Sure it is. I mean, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a ghastly thing to get smeared with that, you know, and, and drag you. Oh man, you know, it's so bad. But I kind of got you distracted. You were in the middle of telling me, and I wanted to jump back to it so you could finish your thought. It mm-hmm. was about uh, the dude from Rage in, oh. a, in a show up in New York. Um, well, what we had done was the the guy who you know was, what I'm talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. Tim, who was in Full Scale Riot, uh, was telling me about. Zach uh, DeLaRoche was in a hardcore band and he had, they played some of the songs that they had done. And he had met him. And I guess he, uh, a very political uh, type of a guy Zach was. And so he was uh, really into protest uh, stuff. And, and, and so that's kind of why I guess they, they, the band didn't stay together. And um, I, I could understand it and uh but his 
live performances and all of that stuff was Zach De La Rocha's incredible. Rage Against the Machine, one of the most powerful bands, and the the what they had there that was lightning in a bottle. I mean, I I just incredible, you know, and and also uh, the guitar player for Rage, uh, mine. Uh, mind slips for the second of his name, but Tom uh, Morello. Tom Morello, that's right. Uh, he's a Harvard Law School graduate. Wow. I wonder what the phone call to his parents was like. Hey, uh, I'm not going to practice law. I'm going to play in a rock and roll band. He's got that like uh, signature switch on his guitar. And you know who else has a fucking uh, switch just like that? I don't know if it's the same or what, but his Buckethead. Well, Buckethead is. You've seen him live? Oh yeah, dude. I watched. I saw Buckethead, and uh, somebody's like, "You got." When I was living in Pittsburgh, and I was living in Pittsburgh, I could catch shows at Mister Small's all the time. Like, it'd be like Wu Tang Clan on Monday, uh, Built to Spill on Tuesday. Ween. It was crazy shit all the time. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Uh, we randomly caught Buckethead for like fifteen bucks or something, and it was su- super weird lighting, and uh, he had all these realistic like uh, on the. The hi-hat post, there's like severed head, but all super special effects. Yeah, yeah. And dude, that whole show, I was like, I was like, I'm fucking, I feel like I'm about to get stabbed. Like I felt super creeped out because I had never seen anything like that in my life. And he's right in front of us. And with that, you know, that mask on and the nunchucks and shit, I was yeah, like, yeah. I have no idea what I got myself into. Why? Well, but I've been diehard Buckethead fan ever I, since. I stumbled across him in one of those... Uh, predetermined what you would like on YouTube video situations. You would like that, Dan. And all of a sudden, I was like, boom, here comes Buckethead. And I'm like, oh, okay, let's see what he's got. Oh, my God! You know, and that's how I discovered a lot. I mean, I like music. It doesn't make a difference. I'm not a specific style of music. I mean, even in school coming up, when I was coming up out out of middle school, you know, everybody was metal. And if you liked anything other than metal, you probably were uh, not masculine and had you know you were picked on and whatever you know it was horrible. But I you know I listened to BB King, I listened to you know anything. I mean I liked music and you know and so uh, a lot of these bands that uh, are around that's how I you know bluegrass or or country or you know. But one of the bands that uh, I just recently started listening to was St. Paul and the Broken Bones. Have you ever listened to any of them? No. Wow. Uh, it's a newer band? New to me. They've been around for a minute. They were on David Letterman's show. So uh, it's not like you know they haven't been someplace. But this guy who is as Caucasian as Caucasian can be and doesn't look like much of anything can sing... The soul music. You're saying he's not a looker, Dan? Well, I'm saying when you look, go You wouldn't up, picture it. Punch up St. Paul and the Broken Bones and look at some of the music they're just playing in this room. And when you look at the guy... Is it like a string band? No. No. Horns, uh, guitar, kind of some... Um, trying to think who I would... would just Check listen. it out. Yeah. And you'll see because... <laughs> Wow, what a voice, what feeling, what incredible, just blew my mind. So then I started 
once I you get on the YouTube and you start hitting these things and liking them, then they suggest you might like this, you know, whatever the other they list. So that's how I stumbled across uh, Tyler Childers, and I sent it to you. You hadn't heard him yet at that particular time. Oh, he's crazy good. And I and I was like, and he's getting all popular now. Now he is right, but when I first found him on the YouTube, I think you sent me like. Uh... Was it Whitechapel? What's what, that? Or yeah, White House Road. Yeah. And um, what was the oh uh, uh, the one about Grindstone? His, yeah, Nose of the Grindstone. Wow, I I I. I That's sh- the name of the tune, right? Nose of the Grindstone. Yeah, yeah, Grindstone. Yeah, I I almost fell out of my bed. I screamed. That dude sings up with with uh, uh with like wisdom behind his years you know and what i mean he's yeah. coming out of that especially some of those early videos when he looks 12 yeah you're like holy shit polk county yeah he's and, an old soul man yeah that, and uh polk county kentucky pike county pike county kentucky and and uh the lyrics just unbelievable and and then i watched and became hungry for knowledge on him and listen to some, you know, him speaking about how they'd all skip school and go over to this one kid's house because he had a banjo, and they'd all be able to sit around and, and write these songs and so on and so forth. And I, I was like just floored by it. But now he's getting popular, and and uh, and that's not necessarily the death of him, but it's, you know, uh, th- then also, uh, like I said St. Paul and the Broken Bones. I got that in my head right now. Boy, are they good. Um, there's some other ones too that I stumbled across that I was like, okay, they're going to be big. I, I remember uh, Alabama Shakes before they were as popular as they are. I was that, like, they got a chick singer. Yeah. I Britney was like, something. I was like, that band is really going to go far. And I don't know if it's a talent curse or maybe I get right. That chick can sing, oh, bro. Oh, man. But I had the same feeling when I first heard ACDC. I was like 12 years old. The kid brought a tape to school because his brother and him were having an argument about what this word was that the guy said in the song. And I'm like, okay, let me hear what it is. And it was a whole lot of Rosie. And he only had the beginning part of it. And I can remember it grabbing me to my soul. And I was like... I, want, I have to hear more of this music. And this is when they first came out. I was 1978. I was 12. And, uh, <laughs> you know, Let There Be Rock album was out. And I'm like, Jesus Christ on the cross. This is the, <laughs> I have to have it. That's exactly what I said at 12, folks. I'm way ahead of my time. But uh, With that type of deep authority. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's how I acted when I was 12. You know, I, I, uh, I was... You know, uh, at a car lot and uh, three, four dealerships and a whorehouse. No, no, no. But anyhow, um, that that was incredible. And then uh, that's also well, '78. There was a big music year that because uh, the Van Halen's first album came out, that Running with the Devil and all that. That was in '78. And the then devil. at that see at that time, I was liked whatever I could hear because we didn't have access to anything you know, radio and whatever our older brothers sisters friends had were you saving up money to go hit the record store at that time oh yeah i hit the record store regularly and i used to steal too i'd go <laughs> that was terrible don't do this kids but back in the days you'd go to the record stores which i don't even have anymore and they would have well, stealing my i guess that puts the whole lime wire and all that in perspective too so i guess yeah we, we come full circle but yeah i'd go buy a couple albums and i would set the package down as I searched through other ones and then when they weren't looking I'd drop other records in with the bag and I'd walk out with like 15 ones that I didn't pay for 
Stupid. <laughs> Stupid. That's not good. Don't steal, kids. Lars. Yeah. Lars uh, from Metallica would be very upset with you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, I'm sure he would. Remember him specifically, how yes. pissed he was about oh, Napster? Oh, yeah, he was mad. But, that, you know, big label music is, is done nowadays. I mean, there's no more of that, you know. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I would buy records and I became members of the Columbia House and the RCA music clubs and would, you know, you get uh, buy so many records at full price and then you could get them for pennies afterwards and oh that's cool oh yeah it was back in the days that was a big deal you know and but yeah we you know i had vinyl and i had a real i think musicians today really romanticize with that you know because somebody like me when i was 12 or 13 was like limewire and napster sure but like sitting here now thinking like what it had been like to saving up milk money to go get a record oh my was goodness. like sure. uh there was sure. some connection to the music that you're just not going to have now on a there, youtube playlist i'll tell you something else too and, and i i take this for granted because it's what i grew up in when you would go buy an album a vinyl album you opened it up and there was pictures and stories and so on so as you played it you felt like you were becoming uh involved in this band i remember like buying motorhead albums and you would open them up and there'd be pictures from backstage and stuff and lemmy and hanging out with his friends and stuff and you just felt like this is great you know and and that was your window to sure, uh to seeing them sure like as people was, sure it was i remember that when i bought uh cheech and chong albums we used to buy a bunch had bunches of them now i up the street from me did those used to come with the giant rolling paper? One of them did. It was called the Big Bamboo album. And it's like a record size uh, it was a, rolling yeah, paper. Yeah, it was a big rolling paper. I hear if you can get those now with the original papers in them, they're super valuable. They they are. Uh, you smoked it. What? You smoked it. You used the paper, right? Uh, no, I, I didn't have that <laughs> album. We, we got it after. Uh, when it was uh, out, my friend up the street had older brothers and sisters who had massive record collections. So we would go and just listen to what they had and, um, uh, you know, bring them home. And I bought, uh, see, like cassette decks back in the day were a big deal because you were able to record off the vinyl. And we had Nakamichi if you had a Nakamichi cassette deck, see, Nakamichi invented cassette recording. Uh, up until that point, cassettes were used basically for business work, so on and so forth. So Nakamichi brought out the idea that that could be used for audiophile quality music. And they had uh, cassette decks that were like $2,000, and we're talking about like $1980, so that's a lot of money. The Nakamichi Dragon and stuff like that. And so, you know, high-quality recordings on a three head uh, cassette deck which today is like an antique because of the dvd uh you know quality blows it away but we didn't have none of that we didn't have that so you would get your album and you would record it on the cassette because the more you played your record you would get you know static and dust and so on and so forth and and so we you know buy the album and keep that uh, you know good state but yeah the, the Cheech and Chong, Bing Bamboo, the Big Bamboo, and then there was a there was a lot of albums Cheech and Chong had done that were brilliant, some great comic uh, stuff that that was on there, and we would listen to, you know, all kinds of stuff. I I was so hungry for that, and it, it's still to this day I 
I've realized doing music festivals and going to shows that people like me, you, and maybe some of these listeners are really in to the music. And, and, you know, I would look at who's playing and I'm going to go enjoy seeing these people live. And there are so many people, 80%, 80% of the people that go to festivals aren't going for the music. They're going for the party, for the atmosphere. You know, yes, okay, if it's a country music festival, they're going to appreciate the country music, but they don't specifically care as much as somebody who is like, you know, oh my goodness, I'm going to be able to go. Want to hear every song. Sure. And, and, and you know, lyrics, that's another thing. I, I, I've sat, I don't know how many times, being a DJ, being a place where I, oh, man, did you listen to that? Oh, I don't listen to words. It's, you know, so many people say that. Oh, I just listen to the beat. And, and that's just, I can't, you know, that's, I, I, that's, or I get this, uh, you ever heard this one song? You know, they're like, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't pay attention to who, who it is. Or you heard that new song by this person? Oh, I just, I just listen to the songs. I don't really know who sings them. I've always been real specific about who's singing it, <sighs> when they're singing it, why they're singing it. I, I'll tell you what, I've been in uh, places where there's a radio in the kitchen of a bar and I will lose track of the conversation I'm having with somebody because I'm trying to listen to what's on the radio in the bar. I'm just one of those hungry people for music. You know, that's part of it. So, yeah. We're going to take a quick five. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. All right, we're back on with Dan. I had to take, we had to take a quick stretching break. Yes, I had to stretch out my urethra and relieve the urine that was <laughs> in my bladder. For some reason, I knew that was coming. Yes, yes, yes. I had to pee. It, uh, yeah, everybody does. <laughs> you get loud quick, Dan. Yeah, well, that's one of the things. That I used to call me Decibel Dan. <laughs> and uh, I had a lot of things. My mother used to say things. My, my mom is very uh, quick-witted as, you know, as well. And uh, she's going to be 86. She's still with us, right? Yeah, she's going to be 86 in uh, February and still works with my sister as a tax collector in Springfield Township. What's her birthday? uh, February uh, 26. She was born in 1934. I'm the 13th. Are you? I was seeing it. And I've met so many people with the same exact birthday, so I was wondering if it was the same. I'm December 14th, um, which was back to... You're some kind of Christmas present, Dan. Yeah, that was me. I'm a present. Uh, my father used to say if he knew I was coming, he'd have pulled out. <laughs> but uh, that was, was Dan. Was he serious? Or was he I'm fu- not really sure. He drank a lot. And, uh, you know, that was... <laughs> Dad Dad was a drinking Was guy. he a big dude, too? Yeah, yeah. He, I'm actually, he died when I was a junior in school. He had a heart attack, and uh, he drank a lot, and he had diabetes, and he didn't follow it up, and he was having a hard time then too. He had just he had like 27 years in at a job at uh, Rockwell International, which was a large plant, kind of the equivalent of GE here in Erie, and uh, they closed and were moving, and, and, and it was catastrophic. And uh, just in Springfield, Ohio. Well, yeah, he was in it was in Ashtabula, Ohio back then the uh, large plant it was a fiberglass plant and they made a lot of uh, corvette bodies and truck pressed uh, peterbilt fronts and so on and so forth and he was there for a long time he was a foreman had a great job and uh, when they closed the place up he he really was you know crippled and then his health started to go plus he he was drinking heavy and uh that's uh that was the end of that so he 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 died he was uh 
49 or 50 was the 1984 rest in peace yeah i i was the last day of school i came home from uh for summer vacation junior uh a year so the year between 11th and 12th grade came home last day of school and my uh, dad was uh, dead they were taking him out of the house and the ambulance and um that was awkward that was a hard time for me then because a lot of tragedy happened early on there because my uh my grandfather died then my uh, dad a few months after and then my uncle and i had lost like the majority of almost all of the male and role models in my life and my mom was thrust into trying to have to work and because my sister was Younger than I, you know, I was like 17. Just the two of you uh-huh. and your sister? Yeah. And my sister was the 12 and my mom's trying to put everything together. And, you know, then I got my girlfriend pregnant and, you know, it was so, you know, here I, I, I was doing this horrible out of control spin and I went down to Pittsburgh to go to school and now I'm off the farm and, and, uh, you know, I'm bringing vodka and orange juice into the classrooms because, you know, you can't smell vodka when you're drinking it. Har, har, har. And I, you know, I thought I was getting away with stuff. Little did I realize that when you're paying to go to school, they don't give a shit what you do as long as you keep paying the tuition, you know. Thinking the, you're getting the best of them, you're getting the best yeah, of Yeah, they you, don't man. care. If you show up, to, as long as you show up to class, uh, you know, you want to drink in the classroom. I mean, I'm sure there are t- teachers that wouldn't put up with that, and God bless all of you. But uh, they didn't care where I was at, and you know, it would, studying would have been a lot. I mean, I where, gra- where'd you go, Pitt? No, 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 no. I went to a, a, a trade school. I got a, a degree in automotive technology. I uh, you know, was an auto mechanic and uh, worked at that for a while. You said in Pittsburgh, right? Yeah, I was outside a town called Blairsville. That kind of a similar story. I grew up in Coshocton, Ohio, which is like a farm town, mm-hmm. and then uh, moved out to Pittsburgh for college. Yeah, that's culture shock, man. Sure, especially if you're young. It was like week two. One of the uh, the security guards of my building is like, "Hey, you guys want some coke?" <laughs> and I was like, I, "My one buddy had done it. I'd never done it." And I'm like, "I didn't know. I didn't know much about the dark side of addiction. Much. Yeah. I was naive. Uh, sure. And my buddy's like, "This is incredible coke," because he had done it. You uh-huh. know, he's from Buffalo. But yeah, that it was like week two of college that shit got real hairy. <laughs> Yeah, see, <laughs> the I, city can fuck a farm boy up. Oh, Eddie, you don't have you don't, you know what you don't have to go anywhere special to go crazy. I <laughs> yeah. mean, uh, I I I've been, I'll tell you, lots of places, done lots of things, and and uh, the drugs and alcohol got in the way of a lot of stuff for me. Um, my, but I was always drawn to the bad things. I hung out with the bad. I, I was one of those kids that when I rooted for the bad guys in the movies. You know, I mean, I just had that for some reason. And I can remember all through school being the class clown and being what have you, loud and crazy, which I still am. But uh, one of my uh, most influential teachers, my fifth grade teacher, Mr. Browning, my sister ran into him not very long ago at a restaurant here in town and he's in a wheelchair now and uh had a spinal injury and she thought that it was him and then she for sure because he would uh, raise up with his arms to do a, a 
something, you know, a tell. Anyhow, so she walked over and she kind of introduced herself and he was like, oh yeah, she goes, he goes, so your brother was dead. Damn, this guy. Now, you know, this guy taught thousands of kids over his career and he remembered me specifically for some reason and she, he goes, yep, misappropriated intelligence. And I thought, <laughs> wow. Uh, my sister told me that. I says, you know, uh, I'm going to make that when I write my my book. That's going to be the title of my book, Misappropriated <laughs> Intelligence, because uh, I, that's very applicable to, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> me. But, yeah, so anyhow, like I said, after I, my, my girlfriend was pregnant, my dad had passed away, uh, my grandfather passed away, my mom's working crazy, my grandmother ends up having a stroke, my uncle's dead, so there, there was nobody around. I go down to Pittsburgh, and... Uh, I'm this is like 18. Yeah, right. Then all I wanted to do was have fun. So I just drank. I remember going to this bar called Skunk's Tavern and I drank 10 shots in a row and the guys like, "You feeling them shots yet?" And I'm like, oh, "I don't know." Cuz even then I just had this incredible tolerance to alcohol. And um I which was a curse. You know, because I mean, I I think I've had. I bet you got into a lot of you got a lot of pissing contests. With oh that yeah, five D. Drink you under the table. Five DUIs. Well, plus I towards the end of my drinking career, I was a bastard. People would cut, see me come and they'd leave. I'd get into fights. I'd choke guys out in the bar, and and uh, I got shot in Doctor Feelgoods, uh, which was a very famous spot back in its day. Uh, G.E. Smith and the Saturday Night Live band played in there. Uh, Steve Miller band played in there. Um, it was kind of like Sherlock's. Where was that at? In Conneaut, Ohio on Main Street. And what made that happen was when I was growing up, the drinking age in Ohio was 18. And so all of the colleges here in town would run plus everybody 18 and a little bit old would run over there and so the places would be just packed neck deep and they used to have on wednesday nights it was common for people from over here to go over there get a couple cases of beer yeah come well, back they, over plus they would go there on wednesday night and if whatever mug you brought as long as it had a handle on it they'd fill it full of beer for 50 cents <laughs> and uh, which sounds great until you got half a pitcher down and it's starting to get warm. But dump it out, you get another fifty cents. Yeah, you know. <laughs> and uh, we used to get just absolutely annihilated in these places. And you know, and and young girls and you know, I always looked older than I was. So even at sixteen, we'd skip school, go to the bar. You know, really great applicable uh, genius there for what we did. You know, and. And so uh, that became like what I wanted to do. I wanted to always be out hanging in the saloons and, you know, but it got crazy carried away. I mean, I seen, oh, I remember sitting down in the harbor uh, in Ohio and this woman came in and shot her husband, right? I was sitting next to him and she came in, just blew him away, shot him in the head with a 357 Magnum. And uh, she, he, I guess he had been beaten on her or whatever. It was a good idea to her at the time. I, I, I didn't care for it much. Uh, you know, seeing him get killed next to me, I didn't like that. Yeah. And then um, the guy that shot me there, I had been shot twice in bars. Um, 
So that was this. You got shot at that very second too. No, no, no. This this is another time. I was in uh, Doctor Feelgoods, and this guy uh, had been thrown out of the bar across the street, and they came over and told us, "Hey, look, you know, don't uh, let this guy in. He's out of control." So. He came in, and I'm like, look, you know, we'll keep an eye on him. He seemed like he's you know, too crazy. And he wanted to dance around. We let him run around, no problem. And then uh, he went to get a drink. Bartender's like, look, you can't drink in here. You've been thrown out of every other place. You want to stay? You want to dance? You want to hang out? Fine, you can't drink. And he's like, well, then throw me out. Throw me out. So I did, a little on the aggressive side. And uh, he didn't care for it. And he went home and got a three fifty seven Magnum and came back. And he came in and he, uh, I, I charged him and I didn't get to him before he drew and he shot um, over my head, missed me by, by my ear. Then he went down and he shot like to shoot me into the leg and my knee and it blew through my pants and gouged the outside of my leg like a groove. And then um, everybody started throwing bottles and stuff at him and they got him out. He shot a couple more times back at the bar, and then he went and put the gun in his mouth and blew his brains out. Wow, right then and there. Yeah, not too far after that, yeah. And then uh, I was also down in Indianapolis. I was helping uh, do security for a, a club, and this guy was a uh, hip-hop performer, and we were walking him in, and uh, I had a leather coat and leather vest because I'd ridden my motorcycle down there, and uh, this guy kid come running up and I kind of pulled him hey back up and he shot me he had a little 25 pistol and it didn't go it went through my coat my vest and kind of just rested up against my skin and was burning I didn't luckily because if it would have gone any further he would have got me right in the liver he killed me and yeah. so that was twice. and those little bullets just ping pong in there well yeah luckily it didn't do anything because it got stuck in the coat but that, well, that was a big plus for me. And he shot himself and killed himself, too. So <laughs> Right after that? Yeah, too long. Yeah, usually these guys, I don't know if he gave it a lot of forethought or whatever. I really didn't know. They're going down. They're taking people with them. I guess. You know, I don't know. Uh, that was a bad thing there. That's, so Well, you got to think, if you're homicidal, there's a probably a good chance you're suicidal. Well, you know, there, there is. And I'm not sure what goes on in the mind of somebody like that. You've but, defeated death several times. Oh, Dan. yeah. Yeah, I was in some really serious motorcycle accidents, car accidents, gunfights, and got... Uh, and then here you are on my couch. Yeah, imagine that, huh? I also did a lot of stuff. I used to go into different countries do st well i'll have to come back and tell some horror stories about when i was in the implements supplements and services business you know what i'm gonna stop you right there because i got a, i got a doctor's appointment and i'm so stoked that you came you're on my 10th episode um i've been doing a lot of the local art guys and i wanted uh i wanted to bring some of your crazy <laughs> uh experience uh yeah, you're an awesome dude, Dan. And oh, we got so you. much more we can talk about in the future. Sure, I'll come back and we'll do the Implements, Supplements, and Services edition of Deadly Dangerous Dan. We got to set you up with your own podcast. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Thanks for being here with me, man. Thanks, y'all, for listening to Sink, Swimmer, Fly. Uh, if you hear this episode, share it with some friends. Uh, we'll see you down the road. Thanks again, Dan. My pleasure. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. Ch -ch 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 -chum. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.